Turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, uh, verse 15 to 23. You know, if this is your very first time at Cedar Home, we are really glad that you're here. We're glad that you're here right now, that you get to join us as we're working through this study in the book of Colossians called Little Church, Big Christ. Today, uh, we're really going to dive into that concept, church, because uh, the title of our sermon is Christ is All. Okay, and we're going to be investigating what exactly that means. But before we do that, I'd love to remind you, there are still booklets available. If you haven't had a chance to, to pick one up and work through it with your families, I want you to be able to do that because in that you're going to be able to memorize scripture, study with the people that you love, fellowship, dads. This is a wonderful opportunity for you to be teaching, practicing, teaching your children, parents. Let's do that together. Um, and how many of you were able to stay after last service for our reading of the whole book of Colossians together? That's wonderful. It was a wonderful time, wasn't it? To hear the, the whole scope of this letter in its fullness and to see all these themes that we've been talking about come to life and then be able to pray together. Well, we're going to be able to do that again, okay? So on the 18th of February, I'd love you to put that on your calendars. You know what to expect if you've been there. If you haven't been there, come join us. It's going to be a great time to do that. Church, let's open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for this time that we have had so far to, to worship you through the, 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 the presentation of the gospel, through singing, Lord, through the, the pondering of the future that you have for our church in the various ministries that are going on, Lord, for the work that's going to happen in women's ministry, for the, the wonderful work that is happening and will happen, Lord, um, in, in mission, in those being sent to proclaim the gospel where it has never been heard before, it has not been received. Lord, we ask for your blessing on this time as we get into your word. This passage makes much of your son, Jesus. It speaks to him in a way that, that nowhere else in scripture can we see it, it being said or articulated in such a way. And so, Lord, be magnified in the presentation of the gospel here today and allow us to leave understanding who it is that we worship. It's you, Jesus. Be here now as, as we worship together. We love you, Lord. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. All right, so hopefully you already turned to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to 23. And hopefully you've been reading through this letter uh, outside of our time, right? You're becoming very familiar with this passage, with the whole letter. And how is there is a unique and powerful presentation of who Jesus is. He is all, right? Paul teaches us what it looks like to be mature in Christ, but he does so within the context of a massive Jesus. And so he is forcing us to realize, some of us for the first time, some of us in a bigger way, who Jesus is and what he has done. In Paul's account of Jesus, the church is getting an ever-expanding understanding of our king's greatness. And so I thought to illustrate that point of how we're going to be doing that today, we'd look to the best source possible, the Chronicles of Narnia, right? Any, anybody ever, and I'm not talking about the movies, okay? Listen, I'm talking about the books. Now, some of you might have seen the movies, that's, that's just fine. Um, but there, there was one, it was Prince Caspian, right? And if you saw the scene that I'm about to read, you're going to realize that, that it fell short of what the book expresses, okay? Here's Lucy, and she's the youngest of the, the Pevensey children. What a name. 
She's the youngest, she's seemingly the wisest, okay? And she runs into the lion Aslan, who's the Christ symbol in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. And it's, it's the first time that she's seen him in, in this, uh, since the last time, since the last book, right? And so she's so happy. She runs up to him. It says that she throws her arms around him and she, she kisses him. She tries to grasp him as tightly as she possibly can, which sounds crazy if you think about this as a lion. That's not exactly what I would do, but that's what Lucy does. And in the process, as she gazes up into his large, wide, wise face, she realizes something about her loving and powerful and dangerous Aslan. I don't have Liam Neeson's voice. This is going to fall short. Welcome, child, the lion said. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. Well, that is because you're older, little one, answered he. Not because you are? I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Now, church, I want you to think about that. As we work through this wonderful expression of who Jesus is, uh, specifically as we look at one of the greatest expressions of Christ, that is not an exaggeration, one of the greatest expressions of Christ in the breath of Scripture. And we are growing and we are growing and we are growing in the knowledge of who Jesus is and what he has done. I assure you that the result will be that we will find that Jesus is bigger and bigger and bigger and that is going to change our lives. Is that not good enough reason to get into this passage today? Y'all excited? All right, I hope you are. Come on, let's do this. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or in earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, church, I wish we had 12 weeks to break this thing apart, but we only have one. So this is what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to split this passage into three parts. And, uh, and we're going we're gonna to do so through the lens of trying to understand how it is that Jesus is Lord. Okay, stick with me. How he is Lord. How many of you have used that term, that title, Lord, when you pray to God? How many? Many of you. Come on, if you've prayed, you have likely used that term. Do you know what it means? Anybody? It's okay, I, I had to ask Siri. It means someone who has significant authority over others. Okay? 
Someone who has significant authority over others. When applied to God in scripture, the word Lord means supreme master, and it is interchangeably used with with the other names of God. It's used to in place of Yahweh or Adonai. But see, here's the thing. It is also interchangeably used by the disciples and many other people to describe another person in scripture. Do you know who that was? It was Jesus. It was Jesus. He was called by his followers, the supreme master, the holder of all authority over all things. Jesus is Lord. And so in three ways, we're going to look at how Jesus is Lord based on this passage. Let's start with verse 15 to 17. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. By him, all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, at the end of all this, the whole time we have together, I hope that you see a really big Jesus. I've said that a couple of times, but there are so many details. We're going to be zooming, zooming in so closely on very specific verses that I know there's going to be a, temp- a temptation for some of us to just kind of get lost, you know, fall away because we're so detailed. You guys, big Christ, okay? This is where it starts. There are major truths to be found here. The first one that Paul says is that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now that reminds me of John chapter 1 verse 18. Of course it does, right? No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, Jesus has made him known. Now we have talked about that verse at great length, church. And so I don't need to remind you that Jewish communities in Colossae would have known that because of the fall, no one since Adam and Eve has been able to see God, right? Moses... The people of God, they might have seen glimpses of the Father, but they have not been exposed to the full glory of God. They have not been able to see the Father. And yet John tells us that in the flesh, Jesus has made God known. Now to our our verse today, Paul describes it a little differently, but he, he draws his listeners into very similar sources as we consider who Jesus is. He takes us to the beginning where we are told that mankind was made in God's image. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, it says, Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, church, the reason we are described this way, and you know this, it's because God intended that mankind would reflect his glory to creation. We would carry it with him or with us as we spread out into the world he created. And so the people in here, we possess intelligence and emotions and the ability to think and to feel and to choose. But unlike God, we can't be at all places at once, can we? We don't know all things, do we? We don't possess all power and authority in us. We are simply like God. But in our passage today, Paul tells us something very different. He says Jesus is different. Jesus was not made in God's image. Paul tells us that Jesus is 
the image of God. Jesus is in his representation. He is in his manifestation, the the perfect reflecting character uh, of the life of the Father to creation. He, He perfectly reflects God's character and the life of the Father to all of creation. Paul says it in another way in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. He says, for in Jesus the, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Church, he's God. He's full and final and complete in the revelation of God. He's God in human flesh. And so implied in the text is that to think of him as anything less would be blasphemy. It would be to be blinded by Satan. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, it says, In their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded their minds, the minds of unbelievers, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But see, as we return to our text today, we might uh, observe something else. See, it's not just that he is the image of God. He is also, according to verse 15, the firstborn of all creation. Now, this one is interesting. This is the sort of verse that has tripped people up. No lie, 2,000 years we've been wrestling with this verse. Maybe some of the people in this room have been wrestling with this verse. Justified many a heresy over the years. There's been groups like the ancients, the Gnostics, the Arianists, modern groups like like Jehovah's Witness, like Mormons that have actively taught that this text is teaching Jesus is not fully divine. That in some shape or form, Jesus is a created being. He was the first born. Now, you might be asking me, why are you telling me this? You're confusing me right now, Ben. You're making it worse than it was. Guys, it's because this is important. Listen to me. There are people out there today that are being led astray because they don't understand what this text says. There are people in this room today who are missing out on the joy found in the meaning of this verse when we don't understand it. And we're going to miss out if we're not careful. We're going to be missing out on being prepared for the conversation that can happen at any time when opportunity knocks on our doorstep. Church, Jesus is God. His birth was not his beginning. He didn't have a beginning. He was not created. Firstborn can't be referring to his creation. And so what we have to do is we have to ask ourselves, what is it referring to? The good thing is scripture tells us. Scripture tells us that it's referring to his status in creation. Paul is saying that Jesus comes first in inheritance. He comes first in his preeminence. He comes first in all things. Look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. It says, long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by who? His son, whom he appointed the heir, the inheritor of all things, through whom also he created the world. Does that sound familiar? 
But see, maybe that's not enough for you. Maybe you're asking uh, in your head right now, how do we really know that Jesus is not the first created being? How am I going to have that discussion with my coworkers that might believe otherwise? Well, let's, let's keep reading Colossians. Let's see if it has something to say about this. It says, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Now, church, I don't mean to be obvious, but the best evidences that we have that firstborn refers to status as firstborn is the fact that Paul sandwiches that statement that Jesus is the firstborn between two really big facts that make sure we know it. He says, Jesus is the image of God. He is as much God as God the Father. And then he says, by his hand, through his power and for his glory, all things were created, including thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities, every created being. Now those two statements alone, it ensures that it is impossible that Jesus was created. Firstborn has to mean something else. But that's not the only reason, and, and, and there are so many examples throughout all of Scripture where firstborn is being used that, that help us understand what this means. Let's talk about Esau and Jacob. Let's talk about Genesis chapter 25, verse 23, where it says, Two nations are in your womb, Rebecca, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. One shall be stronger than the other. But listen, the older Esau shall serve the younger Jacob. So we see in the stories of these, these two brothers that although Esau was born first chronologically, it was Jacob who was the firstborn. He was the one that received the birthright and the favor of God. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, God says that Israel, of Israel, go say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, first in importance, not in existence. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. See, in church then there was David, right? David who was chosen first, even though he was last among his brothers. Chosen first to inherit the kingdom of Israel. In Psalm 89, verse 27, it says concerning David and his future offspring, and I will make him the firstborn the highest of the kings of the earth, the highest in status, church. Firstborn is intended to show us the status of persons and people in scripture. And so Paul is using a term that he knows his audience would have been familiar with to remind them that God, Jesus is God, but he is also the inheritor. He is also the greatest. Jesus comes first. But let's keep going. Majestic picture being painted, right? By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Man, this is a fun one. Listen, we can agree based on this text. We can look at uh, John chapter 1, verse 3, or Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. We can look at the testimony of all Scripture to know that the Bible wants us to understand that Jesus created everything, correct? But even so, church, 
Take a second and think about what you just affirmed. Jesus created everything. Visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, Paul's telling us that Jesus was the source, the creator of the natural and the supernatural order. All human authorities and rulers, they came by the Son of God. All angels or demons, the great serpent himself, Satan, owe their existence to Jesus. Now that sure is impressive. And yet our minds, church, our minds have a really hard time digesting a truth like that, don't we? Spiritual realms, earthly authorities and government, man, even the vastness of our whole universe that we don't get to really see or interact with on a daily basis, our distance from these things make it so that we might not actively really consider with wonder what Paul is talking about right here. So let's do it. Let's take a microscope just to a singular aspect of what we see here. Let's focus on the the staggering size of our universe. Here's some fun facts for you. You excited? Fun facts. Here we go. Our sun has a diameter. I'm not a scientist, so some of this stuff might come a little flat, but it is cool. It's real cool. Our sun has the diameter of 864,000 miles, which means you could take 1.3 million planets the size of Earth and hold within uh, the size of it. The star Betelgeuse, it's bigger than the sun. Its, its diameter is 100 million miles, which means that it is larger than the Earth's orbit around the sun. Speaking of the sun, sunlight travels at 186,000 miles per second, apparently. That's pretty fast, wouldn't you say? And yet it still takes nine minutes from the moment the sunlight leaves the sun to get to this earth. And that same light, if it were to travel four years, would finally get to the nearest star some 24 trillion miles away from us. The Milky Way, yes, I did right. It is the galaxy, not the candy bar. The Milky Way contains hundreds of billions of stars. And the sun would take 320 million years just to make one rotation in the same way the earth takes 365 days to rotate around the sun. Millions of stars, billions of galaxies, estimated to be roughly the number of all the grains of sand on all of the world's beaches. Church, our universe, infinitely large. By his hand, through his power, for his glory, all things were created. You see what I'm talking about? One theologian says, The universe bears witness to the tremendous wisdom and knowledge of its creator. Scientists now speak of an anthropic principle which states that the universe appears to be carefully designed for the well-being of mankind. Any slight change in the rate of Earth's rotation around the sun or on its axis would be catastrophic to life on Earth. The Earth would be either too hot or too cold to support life. If the moon was much nearer to the Earth, 
Huge tides would inundate the continents. A change in the composition of the gases that make up our atmosphere would be fatal to all life on this planet. And a slight change in the mass of a proton would result in the dissolution of hydrogen atoms that would result in the destruction of the universe because hydrogen is its dominant element. The creation gives mute testimony to the intelligence of its creator. In him, all things hold together. Do you see what Paul's telling us here, church? Guys, we need, to, we need to open our eyes. Look at the world around you. Ponder the miracle that you hold in your hands as you welcome your children into this world. Look at the unique complexity of the mountains that surround us on all sides when we leave this place and it's clear enough to see. Y'all told me about the rain. I, I, I knew coming in. Jesus created all things. He predates all things. He is before all things. He is above all things. He holds all things together. He is the force at work in maintaining stability in our universe at all times. And he is the ultimate authority over every ruler and authority in our realm or any other. Man, the Colossians in their day, can you imagine as they were listening to it for the very first time how their jaws must have hit the floor when they're thinking about this and they're looking at the world around us? Imagine if they knew what we know about our universe. Imagine if they could attribute to God just a fraction of the information that has been blessed to everyone in this room at the click of a button. Jesus is not a bystander in creation. He is the Lord of creation. He is the supreme master of it all. That is our first observation. Here is our second. Verse 18 and 19 definitively tell us that Jesus is the Lord of the church. Let's unpack that a little bit. Jesus is, is the head of the body of the church. That's what it tells us. You know, in Romans chapter 12, verse 4 and 5, we read... <clears throat> For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, it says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Now that shows us that the language of the church as a body, right? As this uniquely gifted people that by the power of his spirit make up many roles and work together for the purposes of God in the world, those texts show us that, that that's, a, that's a true congruitous message in all of scripture. But Colossians tells us something very unique about the body of Christ. Church, it has a head. It has a head. Have you ever wondered about what that means? Let me put it this way. Have any of you ever tried living without your head? Wives, do not answer that question for your husbands. <laughs> that made me laugh earlier. <laughs> Jesus is the head, which means certainly he is the leader of the church, but, but the head is not just controlling, okay? The head of a body is life-giving 
We know that because if we didn't have one, we would not have life. The head is inseparably tied to the body and it is giving it purpose and direction as it turns. Does that make sense? And so in regards to the church, Paul is reminding the Colossians that apart from Christ, the church has no life. Say that with me. Apart from Christ, the church has no life. He's also the beginning of the church, according to verse 17. Now, again, that might speak to headship or leadership, but the, the word beginning is so often tied in all of Scripture to, to creation, right? And so, at the very least, Paul is also arguing that the church has a beginning. It has a source. It has a creator, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4 tells us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he, the Father, chose us in him, Christ, before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, church, there are hymns and songs and sermons that are, that are beautiful that attribute the birth of the church to, to Pentecost, to the coming of the Holy Spirit. But the truth is that the church ultimately owes its origins to Jesus. He forged the church, according to the text, before he created the universe. He purchased the church with his death on the cross. He, he brought life to the church in the power of his resurrection. And so he is the originator of the church. He, give it, he gives it life, and he is the originator of it. This text also tells us that Jesus holds the highest rank in the church. There's firstborn. Here we go again. Verse 18, he is the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. This is telling us that Jesus holds the highest rank in the church. We've already talked about that. Uh, from the dead can also be understood as the head of those who have been or whoever will be raised from the dead. So Jesus is the origin of the church, and he holds supreme rank in the church. But, but all of this is for the purpose that he would be preeminent, which means he is surpassing all others, rightfully considered first place, deserving of all glory, given all honor. So consider that Paul follows up Jesus' rank and preeminence with for him or for in him all the purpose of God was pleased to dwell. Now this is the point that Paul has made before but he can't seem to get away from it, can he? See, Jesus not only bears the glory of God but all that, that God is dwells in Jesus and even says it is pleased, he is pleased to do so. Jesus possesses the wisdom, the power, the spirit and the glory of God Jesus is fully God. But see, how does that relate to the church? Even though Paul has said it before, don't be distracted by that. This is the section in which he's talking about the lordship of Jesus in the church. Why does he reiterate it now as he is making these statements about his people? I think it's considering all the, all the confusion that was in uh, that day about who Jesus was. We're going to read about it. People are worshiping angels. People are following laws they aren't supposed to. Church, considering all the confusion that exists in the world today about who Jesus is, what his place is in creation, I think the answer is pretty clear. Paul's reminding us again 
that Jesus is the head. He is the first. He is divine because he wants the response of the church to be declare or to declare that we need nothing else. He wants you all, this body, to hold that confidence in your heart as you head out into the world and you represent him before a lost world. We need nothing else. Take away the money. Church, take away the programs. Take away the instruments and the lights. Take away this building. Take away all of it. All of, and all of our hope, all of our might, all of who we are would still be able to say, give us Jesus. Give us our King. We need nothing more. And we will worship nothing less. Jesus is the Lord of the creation. But church, he is also the Lord of this body. We're almost done. Final observation right here. It's going to help us understand what we ought to take away, right? How we're going to apply this to our lives. Are you listening? Oh, good. Here it is. Uh, verse 20 to 23. Jesus is the Lord of reconciliation. That's a great word. Jesus is the Lord of reconciliation. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So let's, let's start with that word. I already said it. It's reconciliation. Reconcile. Do we know what that means? To reconcile is to restore friendly relationship. Pretty simple. To reconcile is to restore friendly relationship. So what does that have to do with us? Church, I don't, I don't know if you realize this, but there is a very special aspect of God's grace, his unmerited favor to all of us. It's that he made it possible for us to be reconciled to him. He, in fact, made our reconciliation to him his necessary and active objective. And he did that in and through his son, according to the text. And so in all that we read, the truth that we need to constantly return to if we desire to be stable and steadfast in our faith is to understand what is reconciliation. It says, through Jesus, God will reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I'm going to remind you of a text that we read back all the way in November. It was Romans chapter 8, verse 19 to 21, and it was regarding creation. Paul said, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. In hope 
that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. God has assured us in his word that now and one day, creation will be released from its current state of slavery and ultimately transferred to this perfect picture of what restoration looks like in the end that we can see at the end of the Bible. He says to restore his creation. He's going to judge and destroy fallen men and angels. He's going to restore the created order, all of the world around us to its right status of being very good, just like it was in the garden. But here's the thing. He says, now, now, and ultimately, in the end, God has chosen to restore the world by the progressive reconciliation of a people who received that gift of reconciliation by the saving faith in Christ Jesus as Lord. It's a work. Reconciliation is a work. Restoration requires reconciliation. But reconciliation came at a cost, didn't it? Yes? Reconciliation came at a cost. There is an element of the salvation narrative that I'm hoping that many in this room are already familiar with that I'm hoping is just a reminder to the people in this room because you've already placed your hope and your trust in the truth that the cross was the necessary payment of God to God for your sake. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this, for, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And yet, Paul reminds us today that this, this action of reconciliation was, was not an action partaken by God for the sake of the innocent. Now, hear what I just said there. This act of God dying for the sins of the world was not for the innocent. You who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds that God chose to reconcile in Christ. Listen, I hope that, that this isn't news to you, that you're, that you're listening to this for the very first time. I hope that this is true to you today because if it isn't, if you don't understand that Jesus died for sinners, you will constantly be struggling to understand why there is so much pain in the world today. You are constantly gonna have a hard time figuring out why bad things seem to happen to good people. And worse, you might find yourself laying those bad things at the feet of God and, and waving your indignant finger at the creator. God did not step out to save good people. He did not take on flesh or endure the pain of life 
or face the rejection of his creation or take on the horror of all of our sins or die a cursed death to rescue cute and cuddly and innocent and worth saving people. What does it say in Romans chapter three, verse 23? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What does it say in Romans chapter five, verse six and eight? For while we were yet weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, but God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What does it say in John chapter three, verse 19 and 20? By the Lord's own mouth, this is the judgment that will be held against the world. The light has come into the world and people have loved the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. And what does it say in Romans chapter 1, verse 21 and 23? For although we knew God, we did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but we became futile in our thinking. Our foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, we became fools and exchange the glory of an immortal God for the images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and things. Friends, humanity is not worth saving. There are no good people. We sin and we sin horribly. And when we do, we not only hurt ourselves and the people around us, but we shake our fists at God and we actively reject both his commands and his love. Sin is the root. It's the root cause of man's alienation from God. And because God cannot fellowship with sin, that sin had to be dealt with. Sin still needs to be dealt with before God and man can be reconciled. And so today's passage is actually allowing us to recognize a radical change that happened in every single believer's life in this room. In Christ, God has reconciled you. He has saved you, not by the works of your own hand, but that you might be rescued by his hand to be part of a new world where he is actively restoring others before your very eyes. Colossians chapter one, verse 22 says, he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by Christ's death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before God. Paul describes a very similar transformation in 2 Corinthians chapter five, verse 17 and 18. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a, oh yeah, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Man, God's ultimate goal in reconciliation is to one day present all of you as holy, separated from sin and set apart to God, blameless, without blemish and blameless in character and above reproach in a permanent state in which no one can bring a charge against us despite all the things we have done and all the desires of Satan to do so. 
God did that work. God did that work in our life so that, so that we can live knowing that we have been reconciled while participating in the work he still has us to do to reconcile even more people. Do you realize what God has done for you, church? Do you, do you acknowledge and have you received what you did not deserve? Jesus is the supreme master of reconciliation. And there is both an encouragement and a warning that Paul leaves us with as we close up this passage. He says in verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all of creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is a hard text for us today. The Bible tells us that there will be some people that say that they belong to Jesus. They, they say that they belong to Jesus, who also prove that they never belonged to Jesus. In John chapter 6, verse 66, John tells us that after hearing some really difficult and challenging teach teachings of Jesus, many followers of Jesus, what do they do? They turn back and they no longer walked with him. And in by doing so, they gave evidence that they never belonged to him. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 and 23, Jesus told us, on that day, that final day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so... When Paul tells us to continue in the faith, to remain stable and steadfast, on one hand, we can be assured, reassured, that those in Christ will never lose their salvation. And yet simultaneously, we can be challenged before men, before this church, to live a life that proves that we actually do belong to him. Some of you are wondering, but how, right? But how, I, I want that. How? How do I remain firmly established and steadfast? Paul couldn't give you the answer quickly enough. He says the Colossians are to cling to the gospel that they have heard. The gospel that has been proclaimed throughout the whole world and the gospel of which Paul was a minister and of which shortly he would die for. We are to do this without shifting and we are to do it building our house on the solid rock of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, we have to look to his example. We have to seek putting him first as we represent him to our families and our friends and this community and a wicked generation. You know this. The commands of God are littered throughout scripture and so explicitly uh, articulated by God himself in the Gospels. Jesus is the Lord of creation. He is the Lord of the church. And he is most certainly our Lord of reconciliation. And so those are the observations. What should we do with that, right? That was what is true. Let's talk about what to do. We're going to wrap up by saying there are two things that I think we really ought to take away from this text. The first is this. It's the title of the sermon. Christ is all 
Friends, we need to be a people that remembers that Christ is all. Paul told us to remain stable and steadfast and not shifting. Does that language describe you today, church? Are you confident in who, uh, who you worship and who it is that you place your trust in? I told you today that we'd be looking at this passage through the lens of lordship as Jesus as the supreme master of all creation and of our church and of reconciliation. We have painted a majestic picture of the God that we serve. Church, is he majestic to you? Would you consider, is Jesus really the biggest person in your life before your work, before your fun, before your family? Do all of your decisions in life funnel through Jesus as the deciding factor for the things and the people that you will pursue? Men, are you actively leading your wives and your children in a way that reflects to them that Jesus is your top priority? Are you loving your family in a way that would show that Jesus is the one that gave them to you in the first place? that died for you to be able to love them that way? And does the world see the master when they look at you, church? Or do we blend right in? Today, I would suggest that we begin here, that we would know our Savior is all. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Isn't that beautiful? This can be the time that we pursue wisdom and knowledge and understanding grounded in Christ. This is the time when we commit ourselves to, to, to the embodiment of wisdom. Jesus Christ, he is all. We need nothing more. We will worship nothing less, amen? Finally, I think we need to be a people that remembers this is a little confusing, so stick with me. I don't know where I was when I wrote this. Emotionally. I, physically, I was in the office. <laughs> I do because he did, he does, and he will. Say that with me, church. I do because he did, he does, and he will. Church, we've seen today that God is sending out people as ambassadors to a fallen, lost world, bearing unbelievably good news. People all around us are hopelessly lost and they're doomed and they are, they are presently and will be eternally cut off from God forever because of sin. We are a people that God has forged. He has created and called and reconciled in order that we would be the vessels of reconciliation to that lost world. But that will not happen if we don't constantly remind ourselves actively through the reading of his word, through prayer and through the fellowship with God's people, through the pursuit of the multiplication of God's church. It will not happen if we don't remind ourselves that it was through his son's death, it was accomplished according to that. And it is, is by the presence of the spirit of Christ that the hope of the gospel is going forward today. 
and that it will be by the power of his son that one day God will declare his creation to be new and very good. He did, he does, he will. Our mission is to plead with people, the ones that he has placed in our lives, to receive that reconciliation before it's too late. But like all of the works that God gives us to do, it needs to be accomplished with a heart that has been radically changed by and actively remembers daily why we do what we do and who it is we will give all the glory to. Philippians chapter two, verse five through 11 says, have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not account quality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, a slave, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in that human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let me leave you with this thought. God hasn't changed. He hasn't gotten any bigger than he already is. But every year you grow in your knowledge of who Jesus is, you will find him bigger. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, let this be true in our lives. Allow us to be a people that understand that you are everything, Lord. That, that all of the graces that you have given us, Lord, the beauty of our families, the wonderful sustenance of our life, Lord, the work that you give us to labor through, even the gathering, the people of God that are here now worshiping you, all is done within the context of your greatness, of our love for you in response to the great love that was shown to us in you. Lord, allow us to be a people that are so radically changed by the gospel that we would live lives now for your glory and for your honor, that more would know, that the lost would be aware that you, Jesus, are the Son of God, let that be true in our lives, Lord, and let the outflow of all of the, the things that we do here in making disciples, God, in all of our, our Christ-centered desires, it would flow, Lord, from who you are and what you have done. Thank you, Jesus, for this time that we have together. Bless us as we leave this place, Lord. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.